0: Thank you for listening to the Coal Mind Podcast. It's August 2nd, 2020, and this is David Cole from Dallas, Texas. Today's episode travels back to May 27th, 1842, near modern-day Austin, when a Comanche raiding party stole Mr. Herbert's mule. His missing mule set in motion a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas. And the legal issues in that case are very much alive today as we just saw in the recent US Supreme Court case about whether much of Eastern Oklahoma should be treated as an Indian reservation. The case of Mr. Herbert's mule still has lessons to teach us today about how much of our society and the legal framework for it is built on land once lived upon by Native Americans. May of eighteen forty two, Austin is nominally the capital of the young Republic of Texas, but President Sam Houston prefers to do business far away by the Gulf in the city named for him, and there are at most a few hundred people who call Austin their actual home. To the east, Austin is surrounded by farms, to the west is territory largely controlled by Indian tribes, and the frontier between these two areas is at best fluid and at worst violent. On May 27th of 1842, not far from Austin, a Comanche raiding party stole Mr. Herbert's mule. History does not record Mr. Herbert's first name or the name of the mule, and it does not say what the Comanche did with the mule for the next three days. But on May 30th, 1842, the court records say that the mule was, quote, retaken after a skirmish. The skirmish was led by Mr. Moore, who was likely one of Mr. Herbert's neighbors. And after that skirmish between Mr. Moore and the Comanche, a new battle began, this time between Mr. Moore and Mr. Herbert, about who was now, after its retrieval, the rightful owner of the mule. The case of Herbert v. Moore wound its way to the Supreme Court of the Republic of Texas. and Despite being located on the very, very edge of the Wild West frontier, Mr. Moore made a very sophisticated legal claim to the mule, based upon an arcane principle of international law at the time called post-limini. Under post-limini, argued Mr. Moore, if an enemy captures private property during a time of war, and that property is then recaptured more than 24 hours later, the original owner loses his title to the property. That principle, by the way, is long dead, but it was a thing in 1843, apparently, and Mr. Moore's lawyer deserves credit for knowing about it and thinking of making its application to those facts. The Republic of Texas Supreme Court ruled against Moore, so Mr. Herbert could have his mule back. Its reasoning is instructive about how it saw issues, legal issues, about the frontier environment that it was writing in. The court put it this way shall we apply these rules to pirates on land or Indian robbers, or will it be contended that the Indians rank higher than the pirates of the sea or that they have ever conformed to those obligations of universal sanction imposed by the law of nations? In other words, to the Supreme Court of the Republic, like pirates, Indians were simply outside the recognized structure of law and were thus wholly disconnected from the protections, rights, and obligations of international law. But a question comes up when you read that. Weren't the Indians there first? What's the basis for Moore to go taking their mule? Why isn't Moore the pirate? History does not fully record when the Comanche came to central Texas, but it was likely around 1700 after the Spanish had brought horses and the Comanche and other Plains Indian tribes had a chance to domesticate them, work them into their society. 140 years of history seems like it should give some foundation for a claim of property rights in this area. But the answer to that question is in authority cited by the Republic of Texas Supreme Court from the U.S. Supreme Court. At the time, a very recent case from 1823, Johnson versus McIntosh, widely read in almost every first-year property law course in law schools across the country. In that case, Johnson bought some land in Illinois from the Plankenshaw Indians in 1773, Mr. McIntosh, the other party in the name of the case, later bought the same Illinois land under a grant of title from the United States government. The U.S. Supreme Court, uh, unanimously, an opinion written by John Marshall, famous for Marbury v. Madison, other landmark cases, ruled for McIntosh, and the title that came from the U.S. government. It referred to a principle it called, called the law of conquest. In its words, conquest gives a title, which the courts of the conqueror cannot deny whatever the private and speculative opinions of individuals may be respecting the original justice of the claim. He goes on to say, these claims have been maintained and established as far west as the River Mississippi by the sword. The title to a vast portion of the lands we now hold originates in them. Johnson does not expressly use the phrase aboriginal title, but that phrase turns up in other cases of the time and legal writers of the day and put simply aboriginal title, whatever rights Native American tribes may have, had to give way as a matter of law to title obtained from the crown, from the English crown or government such as the U.S. government or Republic of Texas that is a legal successor to the original English settlements. In other words, put very simply, This is land that was taken, we've built on it, and the courts simply are not going to look back under the law of conquest. And tying it back to Mr. Herbert's mule, the fact that the mule had entered another world for a few days, sort of outside the Anglo-American legal system, just has no bearing on its status in this world. It was Mr. Herbert's mule before, and it was Mr. Herbert's mule after. And he's entitled to claim his mule because he has title to the land upon which he is farming, and that title in turn runs back to the government of the Republic of Texas and before it American and English settlers in North America. The third part of our story is in the same time period, 1832, to the east, same general time period that Mr. Mule is, is sparring with his neighbor about this mule, and the, uh, the Johnson case is coming down from the U.S. Supreme Court the U.S. government is entering a treaty in 1832 with the Creek Indians, far to the east of here in in the southern part of the then United States. In exchange for the Creek Indians giving up their land in Georgia and Alabama, the terms of the treaty were that they would receive a new and permanent home in the Indian Territory, what we now call Oklahoma. That leads us to Tulsa, Oklahoma, Today. We don't have to take a mule. We can just take the interstate up there from Austin. And the case decided by our U.S. Supreme Court less than a month ago in McGirt versus Oklahoma. Five to four case. Ginsey McGirt, the name of the case, is an extremely unlikable person. He was sentenced almost 20 odd years ago in 1997. Uh, After a conviction of sexual assault on a child, he was sentenced to a 1,000 years plus life in prison uh, by the Oklahoma courts. But he challenged, after his conviction, the power of that court to rule about his case, its jurisdiction over him. He said, because the alleged incident took place, in what is called Indian country under the relevant federal statute, which is defined to be all land within the limits of an Indian reservation, he had to be tried in a federal court under the applicable federal laws, not a state court of the state of Oklahoma. Uh, The issue went back and forth, went to the U.S. Supreme Court, and with Justice Gorsuch, who has a long history of interest in issues about Indian law, writing the opinion, five to four, the court concludes that even though the Creek Indians have had their land, uh, their land rights revised considerably, had land taken from them in this eastern part of Oklahoma. The formal declaration of their land as an Indian reservation by Congress back in the 1830s has never been undone by Congress. And what Justice Gorsuch for the court had to say about that is as follows. Congress has never withdrawn the promised reservation. As a result, many of the arguments before us today follow a sadly familiar pattern. Yes, promises were made, but the price of keeping them has become too great, so now we should just cast a blind eye. We reject that thinking. If Congress wishes to withdraw its promises, it must say so. Unlawful acts performed long enough and with sufficient vigor are never enough to amend the law. A powerful statement, and one that has obvious consequence for the governance of eastern Oklahoma. It's not going to change the flag flying over Tulsa or anything, but it will introduce considerable complication into cases like Mr. McGirtz and may affect other areas traditionally governed by state law where now there are going to be issues of federal law and related Indian law. We see then that the law of conquest is a powerful principle. Perhaps more clearly than any other legal doctrine, it sharply defines an us and a them. The us is someone asserting a claim based on title that at some point runs from a grant from the English crown. As odd as it may seem, that's the basis for Mr. Herbert's claim to the return of his mule. That them is someone asserting a claim based on what was called at the time Aboriginal title or the rights of Native Americans as the original occupants of much of North America here, the raiding party that took Mr. Herbert's mule. The recent McGurtz v. Oklahoma case reminds us that this sharp boundary of this powerful principle works both ways, and if Congress has reserved an area for Native American law, then the courts will respect that, even if it means that someone like Mr. McGirt gets a new trial for a terrible crime. The old Austin frontier, it still has echoes in our time, and those echoes can have real consequences for important legal rights. Today on Coal Mined, we traveled back to May of 1842 when a Comanche raiding party stole Mr. Herbert's mule from his farm near Austin, Texas. He got his mule back, and the reason why is a powerful illustration about the foundation of much of our property law in this country, the law of conquest. That principle was the reason he got his mule back. It also shows why the U.S. Supreme Court recently reversed the conviction of Jensi McGurdy. If Congress has chosen to leave an issue with Native Americans, courts will respect that decision and enforce that boundary line coming up, I'll be moving back to this century. In the year 2020, I'll be examining some recent law about the right to serve on a civil jury, an important right and privilege that's easy to forget about with all the distractions and disruptions of the courthouse that our COVID-19 pandemic has created. I want to give special thanks to my college classmate Larissa Stillman for her good insights on this episode. You can follow this podcast on Spotify, Apple, and the other main directories. I appreciate you listening, and I look forward to sharing with you again soon.